0: God, I pray that you would bless our study tonight. I pray that you would just give us your words, Lord. Help us to see this picture. Father, I know I know, many of us, we have this concept somewhat down. But Lord, this is so powerful. And I, I, I've got to thank you for giving us your word. I thank you for the prophecy. I thank you, Lord, for caring enough about us to be the teacher who lays it all out for us. So that we might just digest these things and we might be clear to us. Holy Spirit, we ask for your provision tonight that as we study these words and go through this chapter and actually all over the Scripture, Father, that your Spirit would just touch us, move us, teach us and give us clear understanding. Help us, Father, not to feel rushed, but to be able to take in all that you have for us. And we bless your name in Jesus. We just praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen. In the history of mankind, no people group has ever endured the constant pressure, pain and persecution of the Jew. Never mind the fact that some of the greatest advances we've had in medicine, in science, in the arts, in literature have come from the Jewish people. For example, one out of 4, one out of 4 Nobel Prize winners are Jews. I didn't know that it's amazing and when you stop and think and you look at what the world how the world has been blessed by the jewish people by people who can trace their lineage back to abraham it is amazing how much the jewish people and how much the jew has done for has blessed the world and it shouldn't be any surprise to us because god said to abraham in genesis twelve three i will bless those who bless you i will curse those who curse you and in you All the families of the earth will be blessed. Now you see, God is amazing in the way he gives prophecy, for not only is he talking about the possibility for everybody in the world to be blessed by Jesus through that lineage of Abraham, but he's also making a very clear principle here, that the world will be blessed by the presence of the Jews. And we have been. And if we're looking at it simply, logically, at what has happened across history and what the Jewish people have brought onto the world stage, it has been a massive blessing for humankind. And yet, yet, who would have imagined that so much of this blessed world would curse God's people, would curse the Jews, would have a hatred for the Jews, beginning with the jealousies of men like Ishmael, Against Isaac and then later Esau against Jacob, and their family lines rolling out from them, going on into the slavery in Egypt and on down through history from almost the day they left Egypt, it has been non stop tribulation for the Jews. And it's stunning because no one else is maligned in the way Jewish people are maligned. You trace it through history oh, there are different people groups who have been persecuted. Different people groups who have been picked on, who have been kicked out, who have been moved around. But nobody across the entire face of history like the Jewish people. And amazingly, Moses prophesied about this just before the children of Israel entered the promised land. We're in that study in Numbers. They're about to enter the promised land. But just before they do that, and we'll see this when we get to Deuteronomy, we're going to read this tonight. Deuteronomy chapter 8, Moses begins to prophesy the future of of the Jewish people. Listen to what he says, beginning in verse 45. He says, All these curses, and we're not going to go into all the curses that he lays out in chapter 28, but all these curses shall come on you and pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed because you would not obey the Lord your God by keeping His commandments and His statutes which He commanded you. They shall be a sign and a wonder on you and on your descendants forever. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joy and a glad heart for the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies, whom the Lord will send against you in hunger, in thirst, in nakedness, and in the lack of all things. And he will put an iron yoke on your neck until he has destroyed you. Verse 49, the Lord will bring a nation against you from afar. From the end of the earth, as the eagle swoops down, a nation whose language you shall not understand. A language you shall not understand. A language that will sound to you like babbling. (laughs) Because it was Babylon. was the nation that God sent. 586 B.C., Babylon descended on the people of Israel and wiped them out and for the first time drew them out of Israel into captivity. Moses is talking about it right there. He describes them, verse 50, as a nation of fierce countenance who will have no respect for the old nor show favor to the young. Moreover, he says, it shall eat the offspring of your herd and the produce of your ground until you are destroyed, who also leaves you no grain, new wine or oil, nor the increase of your herd or the young of your flock until they have caused you to perish. And so Nebuchadnezzar descends upon Israel in 586 B.C. and in an absolute blow to the psyche of the Israelites at the time, drew the people of Judah, literally the southern kingdoms, into captivity. And for 70 years, Israel was not a nation. They lost their land until they were able to go back. But what's amazing is Moses goes on, skip down to verse 64, he goes on to now talk about in this prophecy a second time that the people would lose the land. The first time was 586 BC. Again, the second time now, he says the following verse 64 Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples, from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth, and there you shall serve other gods, wood and stone, which you or your fathers have not known. Among those nations you will find no rest, and there will be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing of eyes, And despair of soul, so listen to this, so your life shall hang in doubt before you, and you will be in dread night and day, and shall have no assurance of your life. When did that second casting out, that second dispersion happen? AD 70. We talked about that many times. The destruction of Israel, the absolute destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple. And the Israelites were completely kicked out and dispersed, and over time, it got worse and worse until there were hardly any Jews left in Israel. But by the way, those of you who go on this Israel trip, you're going to see two or three towns that have always had a Jewish presence in the land of Israel. That have always been populated by Jews. So they were never completely cast out from the land, but they were dispersed among all the nations. It's called the Diaspora, or the Diaspora, depending on how you want to pronounce it. And it speaks of this fact that this people group has been driven out all over the world. We've talked many times about this, but what's amazing is for this people group to be cast out all over the world in the manner in which they have been, they have still somehow magnificently maintained their identity. No other people group in the history of the world has ever done that. It takes two to three generations for a people group to completely lose their identity once they are kicked out of their land. Once the land is lost... Two to three generations, roughly 200 years at the most, and the people are not a people anymore, except with the Israelites. Except with the Jewish people. They maintained that identity, and gang, it's only by a miracle that they remained a people, even when they had no place to call home. Hal Lindsey, in his book Everlasting Hatred, mentions an interesting occurrence where Napoleon Bonaparte... While on his Palestinian campaign, asked one of his generals, he said, can you give me proof, give me a single proof that the Bible is the word of God? And his very wise general, I might add, said, your majesty, the Jew. The Jew is proof that the Bible is the word of God. He went on to say against all historical precedents, he has survived centuries of dispersion and yet has remained a distinct people, a nation in exile, though scattered over the entire world and terribly persecuted, just as the Hebrew prophets predicted, as we just read, that he would be patiently waiting for his promised return to the land. Now this is interesting. This captain in Napoleon's army said this in 1798. Over 120, 130 years before Israel would become a nation or would even begin really flowing back to the land, this captain had enough faith in the word of God to say that these people are going to go back to the land someday. I've read a fantastic book, I'll share more about this later in our Revelation study, called The Coming Prince. The Coming Prince by Sir Robert Anderson. A book written in the 1800s and the whole book assumes the return to the land of the people of Israel before there was any return. How could someone assume that? Because they read the word of God. And the word promised a return to the land. The word promised that all these dispersed Jews all over the world would begin to be drawn back. First in a secular fashion. First they would be drawn back to the land for secular or political reasons. Until they were ready to receive God in a religious nature or in a spiritual fashion as their God. Again, it was 1978 that Napoleon's captain made this comment that the Jew is proof of the Bible being God's word... When no one could have believed except by faith that the Jew was the proof of God's word. This man stated it. And that was before 1948. When Israel became a nation again. Isaiah 66 verses 8 and 9. An incredible prophecy. Let me read it to you. Isaiah 66, 8 and 9. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in a day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. Shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery, says the Lord. Or shall I who gives delivery shut the womb, says your God. And we've talked about this. Again, 1948, May the 14th, Israel became a nation in a day. Declared their independence in a day. But from the moment that Israel was brought forth, the moment this child was birthed, this, this child, Israel, came forth again as a people, as a nationality. She has been under nonstop attack ever since. It has not... It's been amazing. 1948, May 15th, the very next day, they declare their independence on the 14th. On the 15th, the War of Independence began when Egypt, Transjordan, Syria, Lebanon, and Iraq all descended to destroy what was there in terms of the Israelites or the Israeli people. To drive them into the sea. A campaign of all of these countries, these five other countries, vastly, by the way, greater militarily. Much greater in terms of tanks, in terms of missiles, in terms of guns, in terms of everything needed to wipe out Israel. They should have taken them off the map in that moment. That was their decree. That was their battle cry. Drive the Jew into the sea. And they failed. They failed. How is that possible? Only by divine intervention. God wanted the people there. I may need a sip of that in a few minutes. (laughs) I appreciate that. So just hang on to that. (laughs) May 14th, Israel becomes a nation. May 15th, 1948, the War of Independence in 1967 began the Six-Day War. Egypt, Syria, and Lebanon descending on Israel again to destroy them, to wipe them out. And in that war, Egypt, Syria, and Lebanon lost land. They lost terribly against the Jew. In 1973, the Yom Kippur War, a coordinated surprise attack on the most holy day of the year for the Jews, known, of course, by the attackers, Egypt and Syria. This is the day we can get them when they're at rest. Let's attack on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And they did. The Jews fought it back and again won. In 1987 began the first intifada, terrorist attacks and homicide bombings non-stop, all the way through 1993, when things settled down and at least a peace accord was drawn up. From 1993 to 2000, there was relative peace, so there was, there was still unrest, there were still problems, but the year 2000, you may recall... Ariel Sharon went up on the Temple Mount just to do some observations. The Muslims used that as an opportunity to go ballistic and began the Intifada, which ran from 2000 to present day and is still going on. As we saw this past week, April 17, 2006, another homicide bomber blew himself up in the same bus station that a previous one did back in January when Cheryl and I were there. People were freaking out, you know, Rick and Cheryl are in Jerusalem, they're in Israel, and suicide bombs are going off. Are they okay? Well, that's kind of like saying, yeah, there was, there was a gunman down in Southern California. Are you guys okay up there in Washington? Yeah. We were in the Galilee. We were having a great time. It was peaceful, quiet up there, little birds singing. We knew nothing about it until we called home, and Cheryl's mom was like, oh, I'm so glad you're alive. It's <laughs> great. But all this going on, gang, Israel continues to be attacked time and time again. And what you may not have heard, you may be aware of all of that history and the constant attacks on Israel, but listen to this, you may not have heard or paid attention to Pope Benedictus the XVI's Easter Sunday take on the Israeli-Palestinian situation. Let me just quote to you exactly what he said. Previously, Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger... Out of Germany, I just like saying that name, Ratzinger, Pope Benedictus the Sixteenth used his Easter message to call on his 1.1 billion followers to support the combined Muslim-Arab effort to carve a Palestinian state out of land belonging to Israel. This is the Pope. Quote, may the international community assist the Palestinian people to overcome the precarious conditions in which they live and to build their future moving toward the constitution of a state that is truly their own. A state whose leadership at the time the Pope said this is Hamas. A terror organization that is bent on driving Israel into the sea. The whole reason why they want any land at all is to gain a foothold. Like a bad salesman sticking his foot in the door so you can't close it, but with a bomb behind his back. That's what Hamas is. And this terror organization in charge of the Palestinian Authority, they are the Palestinian Authority right now. And the Pope stands up and says, let's support them. Let's give them the land that they so richly deserve. Let's carve it out of the land that God promised to Israel. A leader of 1.1 billion Catholics made that statement. Never mind what God wants. Never mind the covenant promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Never mind the fact that, as Paul said in Romans 11:29, the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. Forget all that. Let's take a little more land from the Jewish people. Let's carve a bit more out. What is it about this world and Judaism? How is it that a country that's roughly the size of New Jersey, by the way, it's 200 miles long, it's 70 miles wide, it's only 12 miles wide, by the way, at its narrowest point, this tiny little country is under intense pressure of all things to give up land, to give up more, to become smaller. Why has there always been? Why is there still such hatred, such animosity and hostility against the Jewish people? That's why we have Revelation 12 to answer that question. For Revelation 12 gives us a grand panorama of anti-Semitism. It helps us understand and ask the question, Why is it that anti-Semitism is so pervasive in the world? That's why we're going to study this chapter. That's what's behind it. Now this is a great chapter. It's a great chapter in a great book and a great library of books that we call the Bible. And so tonight I'm going to give you several great things about this chapter. Several greats. I'm going to try and do it all tonight. I've got a ton of notes and you've seen a ton of scriptures. And so we're going to keep moving through. And if at some point we all just get a little drowsy or whatever, we'll stop. We'll come back at it next week if we need to. But I want you to follow these things through. And we'll go as far as we can tonight in understanding these things. But several great things. If you're a note taker, you might want to jot these down. You can also just jot them down in the margins of your Bibles. Number one is actually the first three words of Revelation chapter 12. A great sign. A great sign. A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars. A great sign. The very word sign here is the Greek word simeion. It's If you want to spell, spell it in notes, it's S-E-M-E-I-O-N. Simeion. And it literally means that by which something is made known. Now this is important. Remember, the best way to understand Scripture, the best way to interpret Scripture, is to assume that the meaning is plain and literal unless we're told otherwise. By the way, the interpretation of Scripture, there's a word for that, is called hermeneutics. If someone says, what is your her- hermeneutical approach, or what are your hermeneutics about this, that, or the other in Scripture, it's how you approach Bible study. It's how you interpret what the Bible says. If you take everything spiritual and just say it's all metaphorical and allegorical, then that's the hermeneutic that you use to study Scripture. You assume going in that it's just a bunch of interesting stories and metaphors. But if you, like me, assume that Scripture is literal, it is the literal Word of God, then when you read Scripture, you approach it that way. That's my hermeneutic. I assume this is what happened or what will happen literally. Unless, and this is the only caveat to that, Unless John or whatever writer of that particular book, unless they tell you, this is now a sign. This is now something different.
1: Again?
0: I think we're okay. <laughs> <laughs> Was that a sign? Satan's <laughs> <laughs> getting angry! Okay. John here takes us right into the spiritual. By starting off saying this is going to be a great sign. This is going to be something that is something by which something else is made known. I'm going to give you a sign here. I'm going to give you a picture. This picture will explain something else. That's what John is saying here. So we saw this sign in heaven. What John wants us to do, and I think the Lord wants us to do here with Revelation 12, is we need to pull back. There's a sign in the heavens. What's going on? Let's pull back and understand the big picture, the whole picture. For as I said before, this chapter is a panoramic view of anti-Semitism and the Jewish people throughout all of history. Watch this. Again, he says, A great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars. And she was with child and she cried out, being in labor and in pain, to give birth. Who is this woman? What is this great sign? J. Vernon McGee says the following, he says, Tell me your interpretation of the woman in the 12th chapter of Revelation, and I'll tell you your interpretation of prophecy. That's how important this is. What you understand, or who you understand this woman to be, affects your entire view of biblical prophecy. So it's critical that we get this right, that we know who this woman is. Now, among many of the cults, there are all kinds of views about who this woman is. Different cults say, in fact, in the the Christian Science Church, Uh, Was it, Mary Baker Eddy, who who founded Christian Scientology, the the Church of Scientology, she's the one who says, no, it's her. She is the woman. She's the woman in the sign. I think that's fantastic. What an incredible prophecy. She's completely off base. uh, Tom Cruise, I'm sure, thinks that it's her, but he would be wrong too. The woman here, who is this woman? Let me just give you uh, one other interesting place, because there are those who believe that this woman, that this woman, well... I'll tell you one other thing. There are those who believe this woman is Mary. In fact, if you were raised with a Catholic background, you may have seen portraits or pictures of Mary wearing exactly this outfit, clothed with the sun, really bright sun, and a, a crown with, with 12 stars across, and she's standing on the moon, and normally there would be a serpent underneath her that she's crushing, and people will say that that's Mary, and there are artistic renderings of her. And it's not Mary. It's not Mary. But Mary, the mother of Jesus, is not Mary Baker Eddy. It is someone else altogether. But there are those who believe and who read this and study in prophecy and they say, oh, well, it's the church. The woman is the church. Let me just dispel that myth very quickly. The problem with that idea is the church did not give birth to Jesus. Jesus gave birth to the church. Jesus came first. The church came out of or from Jesus. 1 John chapter 5 verse 5 tells us the following. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by both water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. And there are these three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. These things are in agreement. What's the point of the water and the blood? Well, last Sunday, Easter Sunday, we talked about this. The water and the blood, they are the fluids of death. They're the fluids of death. When Jesus' side was pierced, John 19, 34, immediately blood and water spurted out. That's a symbol of death. That's what happens when a body dies and then is opened up. Blood and water will flow together and it's a signification of death. But, not only are blood and water the fluids of death, they're also the fluids of life. Blood and water. Now, I was present at the childbirth of all three of my kids. (laughs) And I can tell you for a fact, blood and water are the fluids of life. Both are involved in this amazing, incredible process Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11 says the life of the flesh is in the blood and I've given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls for it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. God also says in verse 14 for as the life of all flesh. As for the life of all flesh, its blood is identified with its life. So blood is a, water of, or is, a, is a fluid of life, but so is water. Jesus says, John 3, verse 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of Spirit is Spirit. When Jesus says he was born of water, he's talking about that original childbirth, your first birth. But you have to be born again, which is a spiritual birth. Born of water, born of the Spirit. And if you're born of both, hallelujah, you're going home. But if you're only born of water, you've got to make that decision to be born of the Spirit. And in and by Jesus' death, he gave life to the church. He birthed the church by the flowing of his blood and his water Now, as i said before, the best commentary on Scripture is Scripture itself. That being the case, this sign is very easy to interpret and understand if we let Scripture be our guide. The woman is Israel. The the child here is Jesus. How do we know that? Go back to Galatians. uh, Well, I'll just read this to you. Galatians 3.16 says, The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. To his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, referring to many, but rather to one. And to your seed, that is Christ. Paul says Jesus is the seed of Abraham. He is the seed. So the child here, she was with child and cried out, being in labor and in pain to give birth. The child is Jesus, the seed of Abraham, if in fact the woman is Israel. Let me give you another verse. Romans chapter 9, verse 4. The Israelites are those to whom belongs the adoption of sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple services and the promises. Whose are the fathers and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is overall God blessed forever. Amen. Paul says Jesus the Christ according to the flesh was born of Israel. So if the woman is Israel here in verses 1 and 2. Then the child must be Jesus, for Jesus in the flesh anyway was born of Israel. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6 says, For a child will be born to us. The us there is Israel. And by the way, you've got to be careful when you're reading Old Testament prophecies. You've got to be careful when you apply them to the church. Make sure you always see them in context. Now, a lot of these prophecies and promises we can apply to ourselves and take great comfort in. And we do from time to time. But this was Isaiah speaking about the Jewish people when he makes the comment that a child will be born to us. Us who? Isaiah is speaking. Who is us? It's he and his people, the Israelites. A child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. Why do you make that little comment, Rick? Why is that important for us to know that he's talking about Israel? Because the child was not just born for the salvation of the church. The child was born for Israel as well. And ultimately, the child born, Jesus Christ, will save Israel as well as the fact that he saved Gentiles in the church. Says his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace. So if the child is Jesus, the woman must be Israel. But how do we know the woman's Israel? We'll look at the picture here again. The woman is clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Let's let scripture explain this. Flip back in the book of Genesis, all the way back to the other end of the Bible. Genesis chapter 37. Genesis 37. Beginning in verse 9. Genesis 37 9. This is speaking about Joseph, and he says in verse 9, Now he had still another dream, and related it to his brothers, and said, Lo, I have had still another dream, and behold, the sun and the moon. And eleven stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father and to his brothers. And his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come and bow ourselves down before you to the ground? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now wait a minute. You might say, Rick, okay, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to Joseph. That's eleven stars. Book of Revelation lists twelve stars. Yeah, because at the time that Joseph had this dream, Benjamin wasn't in the picture yet, his little brother. Later on, when the twelve sons, when the sons of Jacob will, will come over before Joseph and will bow down before him, he'll be there. Furthermore, there are the twelve tribes of Israel, and Joseph splits into two tribes. So actually, literally, there are thirteen tribes. Not including Joseph, or including Joseph, so not including Joseph, 12, 12, stars. Jacob is the sun. Rachel is the moon, and the 12 sons are the stars, and all of these bowing down to Joseph in this dream. So when John writes of this, he sees this, this sign in the heavens, go back to Revelation chapter 12. The woman is clothed with the sun, a picture of Jacob, the moon, a picture of Rachel, and under her feet, and on her head, a crown of twelve stars, picturing the twelve tribes of Israel. The woman is Israel. It's a great sign, and the sign is Israel. Now, going on, verse 3. Then another sign, another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems. Now we notice another Simeon or Simeon, another sign. It's the great red dragon. Second sign in your notes. First was the, the great sign, the, the woman Israel second sign is now a great red dragon. Now you read this description, this great red dragon, seven heads, ten horns, and on his heads were seven diadems or, or crowns. And it's monstrous and it's hideous Not so much because of how he looks. More so because of who he is and what he does. Because this physical description here, gang, is symbolic. This great red dragon is no cartoon caricature, although people tend to think of the great red dragon as a cartoon. As a somewhat harmless little guy with a long spiky tail and sometimes he carries around a pitchfork. He has horns on his head. He wears a red suit and every now and then, oh, by the way, he resides in hell. That's where this great red, red dragon, at least according to popular culture, resides. He's the king of hell. In fact, he reigns over a hellish kingdom in the same way, kind of a yin-yang thing, God being the yin and Satan being the yang. He he. he governs hell while God governs heaven and there are those who believe and just assume that Satan is as powerful on the side of evil as God is on the side of good which is a complete misunderstanding of who Satan is and what he is about you'll see that in just a moment but look at these these things to note six things about this great red dragon about Satan number one he is a dragon he is a dragon because he's monstrous he is gang the most dangerous character ever created by God created by God yes Satan was created by God 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 8 says be of sober spirit be on the alert your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour Jesus called him the father of lies Jesus says the thief comes only to lie and to kill and destroy that's his modus operandi that's what he's about absolute destruction that's Satan this great dragon and by the way What is a dragon? It's a serpent that flies. A serpent that flies. And Paul refers to him as the prince of the power of the air. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 2. Of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedient, he is a dragon. Number two, it has a great authority. He does have a power and authority in the world today. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 3 says, If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. So they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Satan is the God of this world. Satan has the authority in this world even to temptingly offer the world to Jesus for the simple price of worship. The reason why Satan could offer to Jesus the world Is because Satan owns the world at this point He's the one who has that authority Matthew chapter 4 verse 8 It says the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain And showed him all the kingdoms of the world And their glory And he said to him All these things I will give you If you will fall down and worship you In other words look out See the land See the vastness The wonder of creation I'll give it to you Jesus If you'll worship me And Satan could He had authority to do so But Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now you might say, Well, okay, so you say the dragon has authority. Who gave that to him? We did. We did when we chose to sin. When mankind chose to rebel against God, when we chose to go our own way instead of the way of the Father, we handed authority of creation over to Satan. And currently, he owns that. He has it. He has a great authority. He is also blood red, this great red dragon. Why is he red? Because where Satan is, blood is spilled. Not the blood of self-sacrifice, as in the case of Jesus, but the blood of others' sacrifice is called murder. One of the things that so clearly delineates a homicide bomber as a murderous tool of Satan is because the death caused is the death of others. That's not the way Jesus was. Jesus died. He spilled his blood. He gave up his life that others might be saved. He didn't kill others to pursue his agenda. John 8.44 tells us he was a murderer from the beginning. John 10.10 again, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. He's blood red because where Satan is, blood tends to abound. Number four, he has seven heads. Seven heads, now this is where it starts to get weird and you think, okay, what's the deal here? There's got to be something to that. Remember, it's possible that Satan has seven heads. I guess he possibly could, but remember John said another sign. This is a sign. I'm speaking in symbology to you to understand this. He has seven heads. Seven heads could speak of, at least at one point, complete wisdom. Seven being the number of completion and the head being a picture of wisdom. And it's interesting that Ezekiel had this to say about Satan in chapter 28, verse 12, that he had the seal of perfection, that he was full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. And he began to recognize that, and it was his downfall. But his wisdom has become wily, and his beauty has become beastly. But these seven heads, gang, and this is interesting, and this is something that I came across and and began to understand since the last time I taught this, so you might want to change this in your notes there, Russ. These seven heads are not just about... About wisdom, these seven heads are also speaking specifically of seven nations, seven nations across history, all all of them set against Israel, all of them having to do with Israel. Egypt would be the first one, Egypt that enslaved the people of Israel for those 400 years. The second one would be Assyria. The Assyrians, who were the brutal people, known as one of the most brutal people groups in the entire history of the world. And Assyria came down and and took off the ten northern tribes of Israel. Carried them off, I've told you before, with fish hooks in their mouths across the desert. Brutal Assyria. They were the second nation. The third one was Babylon. Babylon comes along. After Babylon, the fourth one, the Persians, which is Iran today. Tuck that one in the back of your minds. We'll talk more about that in a few minutes. Greece. And then finally, the sixth one is Rome. So you've got Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. You might say, well, wait, Rick. You said seven heads, seven nations. That's only six. Well, Daniel prophesied a coming seventh. A seventh nation that would have to do with Israel. And it's actually a revival of sorts of the sixth nation, a revival of Rome. Combining old elements mixed with new, a union of sorts. And we actually have a teaching on this that you can pick up if you want about the European Union. Oh, Rick, you're not one of those guys who actually thinks the European Union is going to be a revived Roman Empire and actually go after and be like an empire of Antichrist. Yes, I do. I absolutely do if you want to know why, I can tell you more about that. Again, it's it's in a tape that you can pick up and a CD you can listen to. But speaking of the European Union, check this out. According to Israel My Glory magazine, this is stunning, in Great Britain alone, anti-Semitic incidents, physical assaults, arson, desecration of property, etc., rose 75% between between 2002 and 2003, the year after 9-11. By all logic, what we should see is anti-Muslim sentiment in the world. I mean, just by logic, just looking at what's happened here. It was radical Islam that destroyed the Twin Towers, that attacked the United States. It's radical Islam that continues to breathe murderous threats. It's radical Islam that's been the cause of the beheadings and the killings and all the insurgency even in Iraq today. That's all Islam. But the world is saying, love the Muslim, hate the Jew. It's the Jew's fault. That's right. The towers fell because the Jews, in league with George Bush, they planned it that way. It was the Jews, and so in Great Britain, there's a seventy-five percent increase of anti-Semitism. In France, it's recorded that it has increased sixfold. In other words, six hundred percent increase in France of anti-Semitic behavior. Incredible, a 2003 European opinion poll of 7,500 people in 15 EU countries revealed that 60% of Europeans consider Israel to be a greater threat to world security and world peace than Iran and North Korea. That's the view of the world. And that's why I said when we started that anti-Semitism is returning to levels today that it was at in the 1930s prior to Hitler coming on the scene. We should not be surprised to see where the world is heading and to understand these things. Benjamin Netanyahu, one time Prime Minister of Israel, uh, this quote is from Netanyahu.org, it's from his online uh Website, You can go there. From March 2003, he wrote the following. The past two years, again, this is March 2003, so we're following 9-11 in 2001. Netanyahu said the past two years have witnessed a recrudescence of anti-Semitism in Western Europe, the likes of which have not been seen since the end of World War II. Synagogues, schools, and other Jewish buildings have been torched, and Jews have been subjected to physical and verbal abuse. While most of these acts have been the work of Muslims, it is the European elites... Excuse me. who have created an ambiance in which anti-Semitism is no longer considered unacceptable in polite company. Jews in the Jewish state have been subjected to an intense campaign of public vilification and even have been called, check this out, the new Nazis. Israel, tiny little New Jersey-sized Israel, is called the new Nazis. Arab outrages, on the other hand, are passed over in silence or contextualized Opposition to the American-led attack on Iraq has served to further stoke anti-Semitic sentiment among Muslims and the left as biased media outlets provide platforms for anti-Zionist and anti-Jewish rhetoric. Amazing. And this following 9-11, it it staggers the mind. And Israel continues to take the heat. They continue to be villainized, to, to be the bad guy. And there is only one possible explanation for this. When you look at things just from the way they are in this world, one possible explanation, and that is it's a work of Satan. That from the beginning of time up to present day, Satan has wanted to take out Israel. He does not want the Jew to exist. By the way, Revelation chapter 17, verse 9, and that's a chapter coming up that will blow your mind. It speaks of a city on seven hills. From which Antichrist will satanically rule during the tribulation. And there's only one specific city city called the city of seven hills in the world today. It's Rome. It's Rome. We'll get there. But this this great dragon, one more thing to note. Not only does he have these these seven heads, he also has ten horns. Now that's kind of weird. It's not a real complete drawing. You'd think there'd be seven heads, seven horns. There are ten horns. Well, these speak of a ten-nation confederacy. Ten nations functioning together in warning by the prophet Daniel. Listen to the following. Daniel chapter 7 verse 7. And you can go back and read and consider these things. Daniel says, After this I kept looking in the night visions. And behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong. And it had large iron teeth. It was devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. Or it devoured, sorry, it devoured, crushed, and trampled down the remainder of the other nations with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Wait a minute, the great dragon has ten horns. Yeah, there's a connection. Watch this. He says, while I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. A little horn. And three of the first ten horns were pulled out by the roots before it, and behold, this horn possessed the eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth uttering great boasts. And if you read on through Daniel, that little horn that springs up is Antichrist. And so what happens is Antichrist springs up as a ten-nation confederacy, and he puts down three of the nations. So now you are left with seven nations, under the authority and the rule of Antichrist, who is satanically driven, satanically led. And this confederacy gang of all these nations will grow up out of the old Roman Empire. How do we know that? Daniel 9.26 says, after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. This is speaking of an actual time frame given to Israel. I can explain it more, more, more for you later if you haven't studied this. But after 62 weeks or sevens, the Messiah will be cut off. That speaks of the crucifixion. He'll be cut off and he'll have nothing. And then it says this, and listen... And the people of the prince who is to come, that is Antichrist, they will destroy the city and the sanctuary. So after Messiah was cut off, after Jesus was crucified, who were the people who destroyed the city and the sanctuary? Rome, the Romans. They are the people of the prince who is to come. Antichrist will be of Roman descent. And we can see that clearly and understand that in scripture. But this confederacy will begin again as ten nations, three will be put down, leaving a rule of seven, seven horns, seven horns, seven horns on this dragon. He begins having ten horns, it will be seven. He has seven diadems, that's another thing to notice, seven crowns, again representing these seven world leaders. And if some of this if you're going, man, I don't get all this, you're throwing a lot of things, how do I even know that you're telling me the truth? Look, we'll get to this in chapter 17, and we'll be crystal clear about it. But understand this dragon, what he's controlling, and it all has to do, listen to this, it all has to do with nations involved with Israel. All has to do with the nations who are there connected to, in some way, shape, or form, Israel. Seven diadems, seven world leaders and gang, we need to be aware of the dragon. Why? There are people that say, ah, all that Satan talk, all that enemy stuff, I just don't care much about that. I'm a Christian, I'm fine, I'm saved, I'm protected, I don't need to concern myself with Satan. Well, Paul says, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10, he says, If I have forgiven anything, if I have been forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage would be taken of us by Satan, For Paul says we are not ignorant of his schemes. Paul talked about Satan clearly. Jesus did too, not as some dark force, but as an actual being that we might be aware of him and not take him for granted. Not assume he's just that guy in the little red seat who pops up like burnt toast from hell every now and then, you know, to achieve his little stuff against us. J. Vernon McGee said, because God knew that a great percentage of preachers this century would teach that Satan does not exist He makes it so that you cannot miss him. You hear that? He nailed it. A great percentage of preachers of this century would teach that Satan does not exist. And without naming the churches, there are churches in Oak Harbor and in Anacortes that I know for a fact the pastors have stood up and said, Satan is not a real being. Oh, there's a dark force of evil kind of out there, but it's our choice as to whether we handle those things. Pastors, in pulpits, Preaching that you know, Satan's just a picture of evil. Just a picture of what happens when, our, when, when we sin and we make wrong choices. No. Satan is a real being, absolutely clearly shown us in the scripture, as a being who has set himself not only against us, but against the Lord. And McGee says, if your enemy can even get you to think that he does not exist, he'll have a tremendous, tremendous advantage over you. That's his greatest advantage, by the way, is his stealth. And the way he can work in, because we don't really buy that he's real. Or if we think of him, we think of that funny little red suit, that cute little devil. He is not a cute little devil, he is the most dangerous creature ever created by God. Now, there's more to this satanic story. In fact, in Scripture, for the first time, we get a broader revelation of something long past. Look at verse 4. It tells us, and his tail. Whose tail? The dragon's tail. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. What's this talking about? The Old Testament very clear on this. It refers often to angels as stars. Angels are stars. Where does it do that? Job chapter 38 verse 4. God is speaking to Job. And he says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who set its measurements since you know? Or who stretched the line on it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. The morning stars. Angels. Praising, worshipping God in that first moment. Early moments of creation. And so this tail sweeping dragon refers to Satan's fall. His fall and sweeping away a third of the angels in heaven with Him who have become, as we've seen already in our study, demons. Those who have aligned themselves with Satan and with his schemes. We've seen these demons. Some of them we saw recently in Revelation 9, released from the abyss. The worst of the worst, those, those demons that, that were released there. You know of those that were sent into the pigs in that somewhat comical but serious story of the man who had a legion of demons living within him and Jesus cast them out into pigs and the pigs ran in and it became the first bay of pigs. You've heard about that, I'm sure. The first bay of pigs. There's another bay of pigs, a different kind of thing there. Anyway, so those pigs, they, they, were, they were fried, they were out of there. You've heard about the, the demons in the book of Revelation that were bound at the river Euphrates. But now listen, we get into Satan's strategy, his strategy from ancient times, verse 4. And the dragon, this is Satan's M.O., his strategy, the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child. This is Satan's twofold strategy to destroy God's plans in the world. Destroy the woman, destroy the child. That's been his plan. We watch it happening time and time again. Destroy the woman, Israel. Destroy the child, Jesus. We saw when it first came about. The first time was at the birth of Moses. The birth, literally, of the one who would deliver the Jewish people. See, he had them all wrapped up there in Egypt. It was a good place. Satan had them all bound up in a a safe spot, tucked away. They couldn't do anybody any harm. They were enslaved by the Egyptians. Happy day. God's plan has gone awry. He's got them there. And suddenly, oh no, a deliverer is going to come. We need to kill the child. Listen again. We need to kill the child. He stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she gave birth, he might devour her child now Moses is not the child but he is the deliverer who let Israel out if Israel got out of there and into the promised land and continued to grow then the possibility of Messiah coming would be that much more real so stop it while you can Satan thinks kill all of the male children under two destroy any possibility of the deliverer but somehow Moses got away and you think how could Satan have missed him I'll tell you how And Cheryl said this just the other day it's an important thing to know about Satan He is not omnipresent. God is. Satan is not. Satan doesn't have the power to be in all places at all times like the Lord does. In other words, when he's busy affecting some kind of campaign in another part of the world, guess what? He's not here. Now, his workers are here. He has demons all over the place trying to spread evil and do things, but Satan doesn't have that kind of power like God does. And somehow, wonderfully, miraculously, Satan missed Moses in the little basket among the reeds floating down the Nile, going right to the heart of Egypt, to the temple, or or to the, the palace of Pharaoh. Awesome. He missed the child the first time. We see this picture of this dragon standing before the woman. I mean, it's a graphic picture. A woman about to give birth, and a dragon there ready to catch that child the moment it comes out. And we saw the slaughter of hundreds, if not thousands, of Hebrew children. There was a second time we saw that slaughter, wasn't there? At the birth of Messiah. At the birth of Messiah, when Jesus was born, Herod, functioning, I think satanically driven at that time, was seeking to destroy the child, to devour the child who was Jesus. Keep Messiah from coming. Whatever it takes, stop Messiah from coming into the world and you destroy God's plan. But he couldn't do it. He missed it a second time. Who would have thought God would be born in a manger? Clearly Satan, in all of his highfalutin thinking, missed that one. He probably was looking for Jesus somewhere else, maybe at the temple, you know, or maybe in Herod's palace or somewhere fantastic, and he completely missed it that time. Destroy the woman. Destroy the child. Why destroy the woman? Again, because Israel is key to the entire prophetic plan of God. Take Israel out, and the plan fails. Destroy the Jewish people, and you have no fulfillment of prophecy made to the Jewish people. And so, along come demonically driven people to destroy that plan. Here are a few others. We mentioned some already. Haman. Haman comes along in the book of Esther and tries to destroy, to wipe out the Jewish people. Completely. Did you know the book of Esther is the only book in the Bible where the name of God is not mentioned a single time? That's interesting. So you might ask the question, well, why is it in there if God is not even mentioned? It's because of the importance of Israel in God's overall plan. That book's not about God, but it is about Israel. And it is about a woman named Esther who was willing to stand up in a time where it was uh, the death knell for her to stand up. She should have been killed by the king, but she stood up anyway, and the people were saved against this man, Haman. Haman. Later, Herod attempted to destroy the child. It talked about this, the Jews' Messiah. Later, after that, we saw a Hitler. Hitler comes along in his campaign against the Jews. We saw Hussein. Saddam Hussein, interesting in the first Gulf War, where was he lobbing missiles? Israel. You know, as we're approaching and attacking Iraq, he's lobbing missiles over in Israel. He's still trying to take out Israel. And people say, oh, it was political because he, he thought maybe he could distract us over there. No, Saddam Hussein, one of the Jews driven into the sea as well. How about Hamas, who we already talked about, who have lost literally millions in foreign aid because they continue to campaign against Israel? And yet, the Pope stands up, as I read before, and says, God bless them, let's help them get that land. Maybe one or two more suicide bombers, homicide bombers, really, will really put us over the top and we'll give them the land they so richly deserve. And there's a new, crazed, satanically inspired threat on the world scene now. Let me read this to you. This is from CNN.com, April 14, 2006, from Tehran, Iran. Iran's president. Who last October said Israel, quote, must be wiped off the map. Stoked tensions with the Jewish state Friday by saying the Zionist regime is a dying tree and soon its branches will be broken down. Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, or Ahmad, I don't even care to say his name right, but their president, said in a speech that Israel remains a threat to all Islamic countries. Little Israel. Is a threat to the Middle Eastern world, this massive world around it. Did I tell you that Israel is 5% of 5% of the size of the Middle East? It's a speck. And yet it remains the greatest threat to Islamic countries. He says, and I quote, The existence of the Zionist regime is tantamount to an imposition of an unending and unrestrained threat so that none of the nations and Islamic countries of the regime and beyond can feel secure from its threat. In his October speech, Ahmadinejad said, this is why I'm not like, on the cable news myself, Ahmadinejad said the following, he said, The new wave of confrontations generated in Palestine and the growing turmoil in the Islamic world would in no time sweep Israel away. That's the plan. That's his heart. That's why we ought to be concerned about nuclear power in Iran. Because they will set their first attempt at using nuclear power against little Israel to wipe them off the map. Satan, gang, and all this points to this one thing. Satan has a blood lust for Israel. He wants Israel destroyed. The dragon seeks to devour. Why? Destroy Israel. Destroy God's prophetic plan. And without Israel, by the way, Jesus cannot, cannot fulfill God's promises to Israel. And so Revelation 12 gives us the only functional example for anti-Semitism in the world today. It's not because there are bad people. It's not because of all the horrific things that the Jews have done. It's because Satan wants them destroyed And the world's playing into his hand. Well, number three, we have a great mystery. A great mystery. Look at verse 5. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Now stop right there for a second. I want you to notice two statements made here first statement is this. I want you to notice the child's rule. He will rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Now we understand the child to be Jesus. He is the child that comes out of Israel. When, when has Jesus ruled all the nations with a rod of iron? He hasn't done it. Hasn't happened. Oh, did I miss something in Bible prophecy? Is something unclear here? Did, did he, maybe during that last week in Jerusalem, rule just real quickly for a couple of days? No. The Bible says he will rule with a rod of iron all the nations of the world, and that is something that is to come. He didn't do it, but he will do it. Now, this is a direct quote that John gives us when he says he's going to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, this male child. Direct quote from Psalm 2, beginning in verse 7. Let me read this to you. He says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance to the very ends of the earth as your possession. See, that's what Satan was trying to give Jesus. Same thing God said he would give Jesus, possession of all the world. Satan's way was, look, we can sidestep the whole cross. We can sidestep your sacrifice. If you'll just bow down and worship me. Just real quick right here. No one even has to see it. Just worship me one time. And I'll give you all that you're supposed to get anyway, but you don't have to go to Calvary for it. God had already promised it to Jesus. Ask of me, I'll surely give you the nations as your inheritance. And the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall rule them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence. And rejoice with trembling. Jesus understood this. I'm not going to worship you. You get behind me, Satan. You worship the Lord alone. God alone do you worship and do you serve. And I like this verse, Psalm 2, verse 12. Do homage to the Son that he not become angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Do homage to the Son. The word homage is kiss. Kiss the Son. The picture is bowing down before a king or a great lord and kissing their hand in in honor, in a show of worship and respect. Do honor to the Son. Kiss the Son. By the way, for anyone who still questions an earthly reign of Jesus, let me redirect your minds to two verses. Revelation 20, verse 6, that says we will be priests of God and and of Christ and will reign with Him for a thousand years. And that's not a sign, and it's not symbolic. It's a literal thousand years. John explains that we will be with Him at that time. And also, Matthew 6, verse 10, listen to this, Jesus prayed this prayer, Your kingdom come, your will be done, where? on earth as it is in heaven there is a kingdom coming that is a literal kingdom here on earth but that's not the mystery the great mystery goes on look at this second part of verse 5 it says and her child she gave birth to the son and her child was caught up to God and to his throne caught up the word here is an interesting word in the Greek the phrase caught up it's harpazo This is the exact same word that's used in 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17 that describes what we've often called the rapture of the church. Harpazo. To be caught up. To be drawn up. To be pulled away. And you might say, well, wait a minute. Okay, I I see this this Harpazo word. It's fantastic that it's applied right here to Jesus because it gives us another absolutely practical example of what the rapture will be like. You want to know what the rapture is going to be like? What it looks like? You ask this question, when was this child of Israel raptured? When did this happen? Acts chapter 1, verse 9. It says, After he said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was going, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up in the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. Gang, the entire book of Revelation, listen to this, rests on the ascension of the glorified Christ. The fact that Jesus ascended before the very eyes of the apostles, Revelation rests on that. It also rests on his ongoing work in heaven as our advocate, as our go-between. As John said in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Something interesting to think about looking at the book of Revelation, actually looking at all the books in the New Testament, first of all, the Gospels, The four Gospels focus on the life and death of Jesus. That's the primary focus. The bulk of the Gospels is on the life of Jesus, culminating in his death, and then a little on his resurrection. The letters in the New Testament focus primarily on his resurrection. On the fact of his resurrection and the implications for us who die with Christ ourselves so that we might be raised again too. Whereas the book of Revelation focuses primarily on the ascension of Christ. It's the unveiling of the ascended Christ in all of His glory and the story of His great return. The same way that He went, He ascended, He will descend the same way. He ascended off of the Mount of Olives. Guess what the Bible tells us, Zechariah chapter between 12 and 14. He will set foot on the Mount of Olives, same place that He left from. And this picture in the book of Revelation is given to us to see Jesus returning and in my opinion... The church spends far too little time on this aspect of Jesus. That is the ascended, glorified Christ. Now, part two. two. Watch this. Pay attention to this. For here is the great mystery. In this panoramic view of the woman, you're going, wow, there's still a lot of verses. In this panoramic view of the woman Israel, Between verse 5 of chapter 12 and verse 6 of chapter 12, we suddenly skip ahead 2,000 years between two verses. What? How's that? How do we know?